This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. And welcome back, everyone. It's Roger Brooks here, and thank you so much for joining us. On today's show, our special guest is Dr. Jen Goldman-Wetzler. For the past decade, she's taught leaders to successfully face the most challenging long-term conflicts. She's also the author of her new book, Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And speaking of books, anyone who knows me understands how passionate I am about giving people the tools to write their first book. If you've always wanted to write a book but need some guidance and accountability to make your dreams become a reality, Then listen closely to this brief message. What if you had a dream or desire to write your first book? You could finally share your story or express your views about a topic or subject you are passionate about. And what if 2020 became the year your dream became a reality? Turn a new chapter in your life, literally. Join me for a live webinar Well, I'll share my 10-step program for writing a best-selling book. Register now. Seats are limited. Don't miss it. I believe in you. Your best-selling book is waiting to be written. Don't let another week slip by. Why do people avoid the conversation? We're not born having a conflict style or having a conflict habit. We develop these habits over a lifetime. And typically it's because we're doing what we learned when we were young. You know, the tricky part is, is figuring out, well, where did I learn that? But it can be very helpful to think to yourself, you know, what is my conflict habit? And also why is that my conflict habit? Who did I learn that from? And, and then, you know, to see what would it look like to break that pattern in my you know, in my family or in my lineage, that could be a very, very powerful transformative move to make. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. You are the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group, 
and you're a leading expert on conflict and organizational psychology. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to connect with you. And I always love talking to people that are much more educated than me and have a different background than me and our audience because it's good for us to grow as humans, I think, to elevate our, our mind and our consciousness by talking to those who have you know all this experience. And, and you have a wonderful resume, and I just wanted to congratulate you on that because I know you've done so much hard work over the years. And if we can, I'd love to start with your education. You went to two amazing schools, uh, Tufts for your undergrad and Columbia for your graduate work. Um, what was that experience like? And it sounds like you were a pretty serious student. <laughs> well, thank you for everything that you've said. It is true. I have always worked incredibly hard uh, and I did enjoy very much uh, those educational experiences. Wow, I was recently thinking about Tufts and how grateful I am for having been a student there at that time. So I majored in as an undergrad in social psychology and uh, mostly by process of elimination. I remember as a sophomore kind of <laughs> leafing through the book <laughs> and going, nope, nope, history, nope, poli sci, nope. <laughs> and um, my uncle had been an organizational psychologist and had always told me what a great field it was. So I had that in my head and I think maybe through the genes as well, um, it just felt like a natural fit for me. And I also, from a very young age, was interested in conflict. I never called it, you know, I never thought, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to go into the field of conflict <laughs> resolution or studying conflict. But I grew up in a family that had a lot of conflict and also with a grandmother who um, was what I now call a conflict whisperer. So between those two things, got to college and really wanted to take this course at Tufts called, you know, Conflict Resolution 101 or something like that. And I knocked on the door and I was a sophomore and they said, no, nope, only juniors and seniors can take this course. You can't get let, you know, we won't let you in. <laughs> and I guess I took no for an answer. So then I went my junior year abroad, which was not very characteristic of me <laughs> even then. Um, but I went for my junior year abroad to study the whole year in Jerusalem. And that really was a very um, eye-opening experience. Uh, particularly as it relates to conflict, because Jerusalem is called the city of peace, but it could just as easily be called the city of conflict. And so I studied and learned about, you know, international conflict there. How long were you there? I was there for a year, 1994, 95. Yeah. That is one of the places in the world I am, you know, really, really wanting to go to. So good for you that you had a chance to spend so much time there. Yes, it was incredible. So then I came back to Tufts and took the conflict course. Um, and uh, then, you know, the rest is, the rest is, is, is my history. So I got into the field of negotiation and conflict management consulting and training, started out my career at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, and was teaching the collaborative win-win methodology for about five years until I decided, you know, I want to go back and see what would I have to say um, if I had some time to really spend doing research, deep research in this area. And so I went and did my PhD in New York to go study with 
the father of conflict resolution, Mort Deutsch at Columbia, and his protege, Peter Coleman, who became my advisor. Um, and that work, so I spent five years uh, that was funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security because I was studying the emotion of humiliation and the role that our difficult, challenging emotions play in exacerbating long-term conflict. And uh, that was 2002. And uh, so the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had just been founded and they created a new fellowship. Uh, so since, and that's actually what, what the book that I just wrote now, 13 years later, <laughs> is the, the kernel of, of the beginning of that book is based in the research that I did at Columbia. That's incredible. Uh, what do you say to kids that are thinking about psychology as a field? Uh, you know, maybe in that undergrad stage that you were still trying to figure it out, but they're, they're having thoughts, ideas, emotions that, you know, this field is calling them. What can you tell them, you know, why they should consider it? Hmm. Well, psychology is such a um, wide and diverse field in and of itself. You have clinical psychology, counseling psychology, social psychology, industrial psychology. They're all related to each other. And they're all, they've all got their own particular perspective. And um, I would say if you think you're interested in psychology, take the time to really explore which aspects of psychology are most interesting for you, right? Even the differences between Jungian psychology and Freudian psychology and, um, you know, the more modern positive psychology and CBT and, you know, all these various um, modalities and methodologies um, are really worth exploring and seeing what might be the best fit for you. So absolutely, you know, follow what you're most interested in. Our daughter is a senior in high school. She's actually thinking about sports psychology, ah. a growing field, I know. Yes. And, um, you know, every, every major college in the country, every major league team, uh, even high schools now have uh, sports psychologists. And yeah. I was just curious from a personal standpoint, is that a field that you're familiar with at all? And if so, if there's anything you could tell us. Hmm. Not so much. Uh, but I've, I mean, I've certainly, I'm aware that it exists, but I don't know any, I don't think I know any sports psychologists. If you tell me more about it, I'd be delighted to comment in, yeah, <laughs> in no, any I, way that I, I could. Don't, but. I don't. We, we're actually trying to find uh, some mentors for, you know, help our daughter find some mentors. So, yeah. you know, where we are in, in small upstate New York, there, there are a couple of here. Yeah. Um, but um, in the, obviously in the bigger cities, it's, it's a much bigger field. Yeah. Well, actually, one piece of advice for your daughter and for anyone else who, now that I know that it's a, coming from a specific personal question, <laughs> what I can say is if you have a sense already before you even apply to college that there's a particular type of psychology that interests you, whether that's sports psychology or positive psychology, there are universities that specialize in these various different types of psychology and I would do your best to you know find yourself at, at one of the places if you can that that specializes in what you really care about it will benefit you tremendously no that's a great point and it's funny you say that because one of our neighbors did say that there's a school in Ohio that mm -hmm. is like rated number one in the country for sports psychology. So mm -hmm. thanks for mentioning that. That's a great tip for, for our listeners. Yeah. So let's segue, if you don't mind, into what's happening today. Um, we're, I guess, in a state of 
pandemonium. You know, uh, people are living in, in fear. You know, I talked to my parents who they're down in Florida. Um, you know, there's a lot of worry there and we, you know, it's 24 seven on the news. Can you talk a little bit about the coronavirus? I know you recently put up a post, uh, that went to the psychology, uh, was it psychology today? It's psychology today. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. a, it's my column on psychology today. Yeah. Um, can you just give us a little bit of, of insight on what you're thinking about, uh, maybe what you wrote about in this article and maybe help some people that are, that are struggling right now? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I have to preface everything that I say by saying the following, which is, this is a very, very challenging moment, if not only because in our lifetimes, we have not yet been in a moment like this. So we're trying to learn lessons from 100 years ago, 1918, you know, Spanish flu pandemic. Um, And there are plenty of people who specialize, you know, epidemiologists and health uh, practitioners. But so we're in a very difficult time. And there are people dying as we speak of this virus. And we're all worried. So I want to be clear that I am aware of the gravity of what what we're up against here. Um, And it's scary. And in the work that I do, I mean, my book is called Optimal Outcomes because I am an optimist and I'm always looking for what's the optimal solution in any situation that I'm in, sometimes to a fault. So uh, I I can, you know, admit that. But um, given that, I'm always looking at, well, what might be the silver lining here? Or, you know, thinking ahead a few years from now, you know, three to five years from now, or a decade from now, or a lifetime from now, what might be some of the positive outcomes of what we're experiencing? And so that's what I wrote about in the post on Psychology Today, which is all about uh, if we can stop and think for a moment and put aside our fear, our panic, our anxiety, our very real fear of, you know, the worst. Um, if we can put those aside for a moment and ask ourselves what might be a gift today or down the road from having this experience as a society or as a global community, you know, one of them on a very um, micro level for me, for example, in the, in the beginning days of this was, well, if I, if I'm not, if I'm going to limit my travel, I, I was supposed to go on a book tour and I chose in consultation with my publisher, um, to either make all those events as much as possible uh, via webinar or to reschedule. And so it's kind of 50-50. Some of them are (laughs) going to be via webinar and some will be um, rescheduled. Uh, So if I'm not going to be traveling, what's the gift here? Well, the gift is I've got some more time to spend outside. It's turning spring. There's, you know, it's it's a much safer place these days to be outside than it is in a large crowded setting in, indoors. I'm not going to infect other people. I'm less likely to be infected. So, you know, can I be outdoors? Or you, maybe, you know, I have more time to cook and be with my family and feed us healthy food rather than doing the quick takeout that I've, you know, <laughs> been doing because I've been so <laughs> busy with preparing for for the book tour and the book launch. So those are some micro gifts. And then, you know, a macro gift that I think 
very likely will come out of this is that we've seen already there's distance learning um, at the university level, but at the K through 12 level, it's been primarily ignored as any way of potentially educating children. Uh, but now, you know, my kids are <laughs> we were getting letters sent home saying, check this box if you have a laptop for your children at home and check this box if you have Wi-Fi. And if you don't, we'll make sure that you get those because uh, they're preparing to do it. So, uh, you know, that has amazing implications for the future of children who are, you know, just home on a sick day. Maybe maybe kids won't be so happy about home on a snow day and being able to, <laughs> to still learn. So that might change the, the face of our society as far as snow days are concerned. But certainly if we think about rural, rural communities and um, low-income communities, you know, the possibilities now I think will just are endless and, and positive. Wow. Well, thank you for, for framing that uh, as, as you did so well thought through and um, gives us a different perspective. And I appreciate that. So, okay, let's move on and talk about more of, of your work and all these great things that you're doing um, in, in the world. Um, and I'd love to start with your book. Let's, let's continue on that topic, Optimal Outcomes. You know, I know one of the things in the book that is a highlight, I would say, is, and it's more of a question, what are the differences that you could tell us about ideal values and shadow values? Well, this is really a, a core concept in the book. There are eight practices in the book, and this is one of them, is to distinguish between these two types of values, which I'll tell you what they are in a moment, and then to honor your shadow values, and that that can help free you from cycles of conflict that you might be stuck in. So when you're stuck in recurring conflict, and that's the kind of conflict that like, no matter what you try to do, it just keeps coming back again and again and again. Um, the idea here is to identify what are your ideal values? Those are things that you care about and that you're happy to say that you care about. So on a personal level, for me, for example, my ideal values are, are spirituality, healthy living, leadership, adventure. So these are things many people might be proud to say that we care about. Now, shadow values in contrast are things that I care about, but that I'm not proud to say that I care about, not even to my own self. So I do not want to admit that these are things that I care about. So for example, and it sometimes can help to think about this in the context of a um, recurring conflict. So an example of shadow values are things like status, recognition, power, competition, financial security. These are things that can be hard for us to admit. And the, the, the clincher is that when they're hard for us to admit even to ourselves, even if someone else were to point them out to us, we don't even know what they're talking about because we're in denial. <laughs> and so these caring about these things, they, they ooze out anyway. We're pretending they're not there and they cause conflict with other people. So the key is to own them, honor them for ourselves. And when we do, what we find is that conflict, that those recurring conflict loops break. We are able to actually free ourselves from recurring conflict when we can honor 
you know what, I really, I do care about financial security or I do care about status. So what could I do? So there are three ways that I suggest that people honor their shadow values. One is in words, two is in actions, and three is in your thoughts. So you don't necessarily need to speak about your shadow values with other people in order to honor them. You could just think to yourself, you know what, I acknowledge it. I care about my status in the situation and I'm not proud of it, but I can acknowledge it. And so maybe what I need to do is, you know, ask someone if they will recognize me for something that I've done or, um, you know, th there may be an action that I would want to take, or it may just be helpful for me to know that for myself. And of course, this works with other people as well. So when, if we have a sense of what someone else's shadow value might be, we don't necessarily need to talk about it with them, but just guessing at what it might be can be a very helpful thing to do. Very interesting. What if there is a shadow value that may not necessarily be a good value to have? Like, I'm just thinking about something like ego. Mm -hmm. You know, ego is not always a great thing, right? So how do you, how do you differentiate between yeah. that? Right. That's such a great question. When I first started teaching this work about shadow values, I used to say, you know, you have a choice. You can choose to let that shadow value go. If that's something that you're not proud of, that your ego is driving your behavior in a situation and you notice it and you can admit it to yourself and you want to say, you know what, I'm going to let the ego go. That's, that can be a great outcome. And what I've now learned from continuing to teach the work and do the work and use the work with so many different clients in all different kinds of organizational settings and with students at Columbia, my students, my grad students at Columbia, what I've learned is you don't even have to necessarily let it go in order for the honoring to be helpful. You can actually honor it and say, you know what? I'm not willing to let it go. Like I status is important to me or my ego is a part of being human. That's why Freud said we have an ego because we're human beings. <laughs> and so there's something that I find very beautiful about this notion of just acknowledging our humanity, right? There's not a person on the planet who doesn't have a shadow value. It's part of being human. So to be able to acknowledge, you know what? My ego is driving the show and I'm not proud of it but it's part of what makes me human. And what do I want to do about it from here? Maybe I want to say, you know, if I'm in a close enough relationship, right? Can you imagine saying to like a spouse or a child or a parent, you know, my ego got, got the best of me just now and I'm not proud of it. And, you know, I'm human. I hope you'll forgive me. This is not my best moment. What else can we do from here? That's or here's what I need because of that. Oh, that's great. That's great. And I think communication, right, even in general is such a great thing, no matter whether you're talking about ego or confidence or whatever it is, just being able to, to talk about it um, is healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said before, the beauty of this work is you can do it on your own. You don't need to have a conversation with anyone else in order to free yourself from a tricky dynamic because you're doing the work inside of yourself. And that's that's where the transformation takes place. 
Wonderful. So can you tell us uh, a little bit more about the book and the, and the process of you writing this book? How long did it take you to put this project together uh, yeah. and, and what was involved? Well, start to finish, it took about 13 years to write this book. Wow. Yeah, it was a very, very lengthy, in-depth process. So it started, like I said, as I was graduating from uh, my PhD program uh, in, in organizational psychology, I started doing research. I had spent five years in the program doing research on what gets us stuck in long-term conflict, like humiliation and other emotions. Very, very, I was very deeply involved in how do we get stuck. And I realized at the end of those five years that I could spend the rest of my life looking at the causes of long-term conflict and still not have advice for how do we get ourselves out of it. So I really very intentionally chose to shift my focus at that point to how do we get out of these long-term conflicts. And so I began to study wisdom traditions and also what it means to be wise. And I studied leadership and wisdom. And then I also began as an experiment teaching about wisdom and conflict at Columbia. And in the process of teaching and doing the research, so the research won an award from the University of Chicago Defining Wisdom grant, which was a really nice early win. Yes. Um, and then I've taught for 10, I've, I've now taught the course for 10 years. And every single time I've taught the course, and it's been multiple times per year, I upgrade and, you know, use the feedback and <laughs> feed it right back into the, the next semester. So it's like this work has been evolving for 13 years. Uh, so. Yeah, so I first put put the first words on the page 13 years ago. Incredible. And what about, because a lot of people are writing books today or trying to write books. What about the, how did you secure a publisher and at what stage, uh, if I may ask? Yeah. Well, I spent about two and a half years, I think it was about two and a half years, writing the proposal. And uh, it all started you know, I like many people like the like what you're talking about. I had a dream. I had always had a dream of publishing a book for, you know, mass consumption. Um, and I had told a friend of mine who was a writer who had just published her own book that this was something I was interested in, but I not you know wasn't sure whether that now was the right time. And she said, "Let me introduce you. You know, do you know so and so who's a mutual friend of ours?" And she connected me to that person and that person said, do you know my friend who's an agent? So she connected me to, to her friend who's an agent and the agent and I met and we've been together ever since. So my agent helped me create my, my book proposal. It's a very idiosyncratic process of, well, for me anyway, it was, there are many different ways that a uh, proposal can look, I think, depending on the field that you're in and the type of book you're writing and even who your agent is and who, what kinds of publishing houses you're looking to, uh, to buy the book. So it took a long time to get the proposal right. Uh, and also I was working very, very, very full time um, and have had young kids at home. And so between, you know, a more than full time uh, job, consulting and coaching and teaching all at the same time and with the kid, you know, it just was like very, very, very part time of writing the proposal. And I promised myself if I got a book deal that I would not do that to myself anymore because my quality of life had really, really suffered. And so uh, when I got the book deal, I said no to almost everything else 
and really focused. And that focus took about a year. I had a year to write the book. Um, yeah. So at that stage, at that point, was did you have a draft of the book yet? Just or was it just all kinds of research? Yes, you did have a yes. draft. Yes. Okay. Well, so the the proposal was the process of of writing both the the big picture draft of every chapter of the book and what that would look like, which was based on the course that I had been teaching and revamping and you know teaching and revising over many years, um, and it was it was fascinating too to be in that process of writing the proposal and then feeding back what what I wrote in the proposal into the course you know it was like a two-way feedback system it was it was a real nice feedback loop because every time I taught something or every time every time I wrote something in the proposal I tested it out in the course and saw if it worked and how you know what needed to be tweaked and then fed that back into the proposal so that was nice that that, that was is great too. wow that is yeah. Great. yeah fantastic so the book is out and available where everywhere <laughs> i don't think there's a place this book is not available it's in you know and it's in india and korea and china and um yeah it's all over i mean you know amazon and barnes and noble and books a million and indie bound and everywhere Wonderful. Yeah. well I, I i love books so what i'm going to do is go into our barnes and noble and purchase this book thank you I, I just want to hold it so yes that's great to know and i yeah. hope our listeners do the same Wow, this is great. So we have still a lot to cover here. So uh, I appreciate you sharing some some tips and insights and information about your book. It sounds fascinating and all the hard work that went into it. So let's talk about uh, some of the other things that you're really wonderful at. And um, yeah, you have these commonly experienced conflicts that, that you talk about and that you mm -hmm. cite and um, I would love to walk through a couple of them, if you don't mind. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the example, one of your examples, and maybe we could just chat about, you know, maybe the situation and, and how how it, um, you know, intersects with, say, a manager and, and the employee. So the first one I, I noticed was a manager avoids giving negative feedback mm -hmm. or firing a direct report. Yeah. So those are two very different um, examples, but in both cases, the person is avoiding doing something that they that they are worried is going to be challenging for them. And uh, in the book and in all of my work, I talk about four different conflict habits that we all fall back on. One, typically, primarily, of the four. So one of them is we avoid conflicts, and we often do that to the point of where we're shut down. So when a conflict is recurring, it just keeps coming back again and again and again, and we avoid it, what typically happens, it bubbles over, it brews, and it explodes. And then we really have a big problem on our hands. And very often when you have a manager who is unwilling to give or unable to give critical feedback to someone who works for them, that is typically what we see happen is that it will boil over and bubble over and then eventually something explodes where the person just keeps doing that same problematic behavior over and over again it impacts other people on the team then other people on the team have a problem and now you have to go deal with them as well so you know my best advice well my advice when we notice just first of all to to notice our conflict habits and if people are interested in what the other four are and also um 
in assessing yourself, you can actually go online at optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment, and you can take the quiz and find out what your conflict habit is. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, but in the case where someone acknowledges, oh, okay, I get it. I tend to avoid conflict. That can then lead to these unwanted outcomes. So my advice is do something different. Do something to break that habit. Do something else. So if you've been avoiding, in, you know, in that case, one of the most obvious things that is going to take a lot of guts and courage for the person to do but it is to have a direct conversation. And, you know, I don't, I wouldn't ever want to send someone in to go have a direct conversation without practicing first, without being thoughtful about how you're going to give the feedback, what you're going to say, how you're going to help the other person process that information. So you absolutely want to do all of those things in advance and to prepare. Uh, and the key is to have a direct conversation rather than keep avoiding. Fantastic. No, and it makes total sense. What, is, what do you think? Why, why do people avoid conflict? Why do they avoid the conversation? Yeah. What is the, is it, why? I just, yeah. all I could ask is why right. does that happen? Right. The main, I mean, one of the main, we're not, we don't, we're not, we don't come out of the womb. We're not born having a conflict style or having a conflict habit, we develop these habits over a lifetime. And typically it's because we're doing what we learned when we were young. So whether we learn that, you know, the tricky part is, is figuring out, well, where did I learn that? Whether we learned it at home by watching parents and other family members deal with conflict, that's a very obvious way, but we could also learn our conflict habits in other ways from other people in our environment, whether those are leaders of our community or other close family members or even teachers or siblings. But it can be very helpful to think to yourself, you know, what is my conflict habit? And also, why is that my conflict habit? Who did I learn that from or who modeled that for me? And, and then, you know, to see what would it look like to break that pattern in my, you know, in my family or in my lineage that could be a very, very powerful transformative move to make. Yeah, I could see that. Jen, what about uh, as the employee and you're seeing or you're feeling tension, you're just feeling negative energy, something's off, mm -hmm. but nothing's being done. Is there anything that the employee can do to be proactive in this case? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, and I think you're talking about the employee who is not getting the feedback that they deserve. Exactly. Yet. Yes. Yeah or that they rightly should be getting. Um, but we could also talk about the other employees who are inevitably, inevitably watching this whole thing not happen, right? But we can start with the person you're talking about first, for sure. I mean, when you have the sense, and that's the other thing about when, when we avoid giving negative feedback, it's like it's, it's oozing out. It's all around us anyway. It's like the big unspoken elephant in the room. <laughs> Everyone else on the team knows this one person's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, not delivering, not performing to the standards that are expected. It's impacting other people on the right? So, um, so when you're that in that, when you're that person, you're in that situation, you have a sense that something's just off. A great thing to do again is as, to the extent that you are able, have a direct conversation. You can go to your boss and say, you know, I have the sense that I'm not doing exactly what you're asking me to do. And I'm a little flummoxed because 
I'm not sure how I could do a better job. I would love your help. If there are any resources you could point me to, please do. If there are ways that you personally would be willing to tell me what you think I, you know, could learn or benefit or, you know, if you could help me, that would be great, but you don't have to. So that's, again, not necessarily an easy conversation to have. And you can practice with a friend or a coach. So Jen, sorry to keep going with these, but my, my mind's racing now. I'm just thinking about what, what if the employee is really not doing anything wrong? You know, I know we talked about, yes, maybe they are, but in this case, they're not. They're actually excelling in their work, but the, the manager may feel threatened by that employee for whatever reason, and it's just, it, it's more of a personality conflict. Mm-hmm. What do you do in that case? Yeah. So there are a few different ways you could approach this, and you might, it might be like a stepwise solution where you try one, and then you try the next, and then you try the next. I think the first thing I would recommend doing is checking with other people around you and ask, you know, to find out, are you the only one who's having this experience? Because I think often there's some shame associated with not being treated well by a boss and we tend to hide it and we don't share it. We're, we don't, we're ashamed. So a good first step could actually be to share with other colleagues who we trust And, you know, you can ask them to keep that conversation confidential and just check and say, like, I'm not feeling such a great vibe with our manager. Am I alone in this? Do you have this experience as well? So just doing that check can be very helpful because if it's this kind of situation where other people are experiencing it too, it's a whole different set of things that I would recommend to do after that, right? If you're not alone and it's about the manager, who's treating everyone this way, then probably I would say, don't take it personally. Do what you can to do your best work in that environment. But I would be much less likely to advise you in that case to go try to have a direct conversation with the manager. Because if they're treating everybody who works for them in a certain way, you trying to make that change for them is not so likely. Might be more a better use of your time to do the best work you can and be exploring alternative opportunities for yourself, either in another part of your business or in another organization altogether. However, if you do that pulse check with other people, other colleagues, and you find, you know what, I'm the one being treated this way because who knows why, but it's just me then I would advise the same thing I did before, which is to try to have a direct conversation. And again, a thoughtful one, one where you've prepared what you want to say. You might have role-played it in advance with a friend or a colleague um, where you might, you know, say something to the manager like, I have the sense that I've done something that doesn't work well for you. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I want you to know I so respect you and I love working for you and I would do anything, you know, to help make things right. If you would be willing to let me know how I could, you know, if there's anything I've been doing that's been hard for you, please let me know. But see, this gets back to shadow values too, right? Because that manager, if it, if, if what you said is true, that that manager may be jealous of the employee, how likely do you think it is that the manager has inside of themselves said to themselves, you know, I'm jealous of this person. I'm going to treat them badly. (laughs) 
right? Not very likely. Right. So it can be a very tricky, hard conversation to have because even if you say to them, I think you know, you're treating me poorly, they're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about because they're in denial that that's what they're doing. So to be able to say to yourself, you know what? That person needs recognition. They feel threatened by me and it doesn't say anything about me. It says something about them. How can I help them? How can I help them feel recognized? How can I help them feel good? And of course, you know, you don't want to feel like you're, you know, brown nosing or something, but, um, but that can be a, a helpful first step. Great. No, and I, you know, I, I think sometimes too, and you, you mentioned it earlier that maybe it's just not the right situation for you, right? right. If, if there is that conflict, right. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to keep yourself in that situation. Maybe that yes. is the time to start looking. Maybe that's a sign for right. you to, Yes. To expand and, and, and grow and get into another environment that's, that's yes. more friendly for you. Absolutely. Right. If you think about people, you know, it's, it, it's such an amazing experience to work for someone who appreciates you and mm. all of the gifts that you bring. And if you can go somewhere where you can have that kind of relationship with a manager, you're going to be a lot happier and a lot more productive and better off. Awesome. For everyone. Great. Uh, two more topics I'd love to cover quickly if we can, and I just want to be respectful of your time here. Uh, the first one, family. Um, obviously, there's a lot of different potential conflicts in a, in a family situation, but one that uh, many couples go through is, as you call it, the feuding couple. What can you tell us about this and um, maybe some, some tips or ideas for us to, to think about as, uh, for ourselves and our, and our spouse? So first of all, I'll say the way that I recommend dealing with family conflicts is exactly, it was very similar to how I recommend dealing with conflicts at work and in public life. There's eight practices that, that have been tried and true that apply to all these kinds of situations and different ones of them become more and less central or useful, but they're all applicable. That said, um, in family situations, one of the trickier dynamics is that just like we were just talking about in a work situation, if you're unhappy or things are not right with you and your manager, you can think about walking away. It's much often less uh, viable to do that when you're in a family setting, whether it's a spouse or whether it's a ch parent or a child. Um, and so that constrains us. And so there are um, exercises actually in the Optimal Outcomes book where you can do them for free online. You don't even need to have the book um, to assess what are the costs that I would pay if I walk away from this person in this situation, if I stay stuck in conflict, or if I pursue what I call an optimal outcome. And you want to really look and think carefully about where am I going to pay the fewest costs? Where will I have the most benefits? And what, which one of these three ways of going will require me to take pattern-breaking action to do something different than I've done before? And that's how you know which one of these three paths you should take. And um, so that's one thing to think about in a family setting. The other thing to think about is like we were talking about ideal values and shadow values and how you don't even need to talk about them with someone else in order for them to be useful for you, for you inside of yourself. But in families, particularly when you do have a close enough relationship, sometimes it can be helpful to talk about shadow values and to let the other person know, hey, you know, I think this is my shadow value. Does that make sense to you? Would you agree? Or 
I was thinking about it and here's something that occurred to me, you know, you've always said that you care a lot about say egalitarianism. Um, and yet I've noticed that our work in our home is not shared equally. If, you know, you can tell that this is something <laughs> close to my own heart. <laughs> I'm speaking from personal experience here. <laughs> and so, you know, I've, so I've said to my husband, you know, this is something we both say is really important to us, egalitarianism. And yet in our home, it has not always felt to me like we're splitting things 50-50. So what could it look like for us to try to get to that ideal future that we, that I know we both share for ourselves. So I'm not exactly saying to him, I think your shadow value is, you know, tradition or whatever, but, but I've noticed that for myself and it has helped us have a more honest and helpful conversation. I love that. No, thanks for, for sharing that. And the one thing that comes to mind as, as you were talking is awareness, right? Being aware of our surroundings Love to use examples. I'm glad you used a real life example. But even for me, you know, if my when I see my wife hustling around the house, doing everything, you know, um, laundry and um, lunches for the kids and in and, and dishes, and you know, I, a lot of times I'll step back and say, wait a minute, that's that's really not fair for her to do 100. percent You know, I can do at least 20, 30 percent. You know just to pitch in. If there's a, a clean laundry basket at the, you know, at the foot of the, the, the stairs, bring it up, you know, to the kid's bedroom. Little things like that. Mm -hmm. Just love to know your thoughts about awareness and how that may impact all of this. Yeah. Well, awareness is the key to it all. So we can't, you can't even do the work that we're talking about, about particularly about shadow values, but you also can't break a pattern until you notice what the pattern is. So that's why the first practice in the optimal outcomes method is called notice your habits and patterns. Because when you notice what your habit is, so it, like we were talking about before, somebody who notices that their habit is um, avoiding or shutting down in the face of conflict, and then you want to notice, well, what might the other person or other people involved in the situation, what might their habit be? Well, maybe their habit is that they blame and attack other people. So if you've got one person blaming and attacking and you've got the other person shutting down, that's a pattern. They're stuck in that pattern. Blame, avoid, blame, avoid, shut down, shut down, right? And we, we know how effective that is, right? Not very, just staying stuck. So once you notice that pattern, you then have the opportunity to break the pattern by doing something different than you've done before whether that is, you know, this person or this person doesn't, only one person needs to do something different in order for that pattern to break open. Great, great. Well, it sounds like I might be a little bit on the right path knowing about yes, it. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, great. Now, the last one that I would love to just chat about, um, and it's something most of the guests on the show don't want to talk about, and that's no. politics. But I know that's something that's part of your work. It's something that... Um, uh, happens with a lot of our families, you know, it's a very, uh, friends, it could be very uncomfortable. We're living in unprecedented times when it comes to politics. I have some views I'd love to share after I ask you this question, because I'm just curious what, what you would think. Mm -hmm. But um, how do you help or, or how do you advise people to deal with conflicting beliefs um, on politics, on issues, on candidates? Yeah. 
So my, the thing that I think I can contribute the best is about so often when we think we are involved in a polarizing conversation or a polarized conversation with someone else, right? So we're saying yes and they're saying no, whether the issue is immigration reform or gun control or abortion uh, or any hot topic of the day or presidential election 2020, so often it can seem like we are at just polar opposite ends of the spectrum. But actually, when we notice what are the values that underlie each person's position, we can pretty quickly notice that we share values, even on such a contentious topic like abortion. And I, the, way, the reason I know that this is true is because I have an exercise that I've been doing for over 10 years in my course at Columbia, where I have students take, choose one issue, so maybe they're choosing gun control, for example, and, each, and they, I pair them up, and each person in the pair is asked to both listen and speak both sides of an issue. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So when you do that exercise, you get to hear, and you get to hear yourself mm. speaking both sides, and you're forced to ask yourself, gosh, like what does the other side, and, and I give you about a minute to make each side's case. And you know, 60 seconds can feel really long when you are struggling because you never in your life thought you were gonna ever hear these words coming out of your mouth. And, but you have those, that whole minute to fill with thinking, you know, what am I gonna say here for this other side? Um, and what, and Always, always the insight when I ask people, so what did you learn from this exercise? There's always hands up saying, I realize that we're not as far apart fundamentally as we thought that we were. We have different ways of going about it. So for, in, in the example of abortion, we, ca we all care about life. We all care about human life. We have different ways of approaching it. But at core, we all care about humanity. And when you can recognize that, it's a very powerful moment. So I encourage people to try that. Wow. Yeah. And that's actually trickled down uh, your, your uh, process there. I know my son is in eighth grade in middle school and their teachers having them do that on, mm. on playing both sides. So it's great to know that, that this is something. And, and yeah. for my son who went through it, he told me he, he learned about the other side. So that's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. Yes. It's a great exercise. Yes. Okay. Now, what, one of the things I'm really struggling with, and I, I honest, you know, even before all this mess, I really try hard to stay neutral and balanced in my life. And that trickles into politics. So, um, you know, I'm one of these people that I really try hard to be thoughtful about voting for the candidate, um, no matter what, what side they're on. But in these last couple of years, since President Trump was elected, I, the one thing that I'm really not understanding, and I'd love your take on this, is the conflict that we're seeing with the media. It's just, un, you know, it's unbelievable. And again, I try to watch all the channels to hear different perspectives, um, but there just seems to be, you know, an overwhelming, you know, pounce um, that I've never seen before. 
on a president and again, not sticking up for our president, but I've, I've, mm-hmm. our president is our president, whether it was George Bush, uh, 9-11 or, or President Obama when they had to uh, assassinate bin Laden. I mean, that's our president. And I just, I'm not feeling that. And I know a majority of our country is not feeling this right now mm-hmm. where we have a, a good feeling about, about the office of the presidency. Yeah. Well, when the president uh, has disparaging things to say about the press corps, you know, that's what you're going to (laughs) get, right? Just like when you think about a conflict loop and you have one side attacking, the other side's going to do one of two things. They're either going to shut down, like we were talking about before, or they're going to attack back. So when the president attacked the press corps, the press corps attacked back. You know, it's very simple. So if, if you were advising him right now, yeah, is it too late? <laughs> it may be. I mean, our, Donald Trump is a very um, particular case because I put him in the class of a bully. And so when you're dealing with a bully, a lot of advice that I would give under normal circumstances doesn't hold. Um, and I, you know, so that's, I think we're dealing with a bully. And if he is reelected, this was my next question. What is going to happen for the next four years? Are we just going to see more of the same? Um, what is going to happen? I think part of, it's a very difficult question to answer because part of what is, has been so challenging about his presidency is that it's so unpredictable. And I know that's part of his, um, seems to be part of his uh, brand, you know, is to act in these unpredictable ways. But, to, you know, it seems to be getting a little tiresome. Um, so I think it's incredibly hard to predict. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, you talking about that because it's not something we, we, we typically talk about. But we are American Real. We want to talk about these real issues that we're facing uh, in our lives, you know, like the workplace. Uh, like the coronavirus and like politics. Those are all very real things. So I so appreciate you coming on today. And um, any, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? We'll, we'll put the link for your book and all that, but if they are interested in, in contacting you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Well, the best way really is the book website, which is optimaloutcomesbook.com. And then also on LinkedIn and Facebook, those are the two uh, primary platforms. You can send me a note. I, I would love to hear from people. Excellent. Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, welcome to the American Real Family, and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we can help. You can
can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.